Managing your 401k is hard. Bloom isn't. See what you could be doing to make your 401k better by getting a free analysis at bloom401k.com slash fool. That's bloom with three O's, 401k.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. A pleasure to have you join with me. This is the final week of the month of June 2018, and therefore, yes, it is your Rule Breaker Investing mailbag. The aim of this show is the same every week, to educate, to amuse, and to enrich. We've always said at The Motley Fool since we first put that phrase on our AOL site. Yep, pre-web, back in the day. Educate, amuse, enrich. We've always said Never two without the third, never just one without the other two. When The Motley Fool is at its best, we're doing all three at the same time. I try to do that every week. Sometimes I succeed, perhaps, and no doubt sometimes I fail. I'll try to do well at it this week. So, it is your Rule Breaker Investing mailbag. I've got a few guests queued up, as I always like to have friends join me to answer some of your wonderful questions. I've got at least one dramatic reading I'll be performing toward the end, but we have a very motley array of questions about investing and business. And without further ado, I think we should get started. Now, I've taken in recent months to having an opening section called my Hot Takes section, and sure enough, just generally reacting to tweets or short things, we're going to lead off with some hot takes this month. And the first one I'd like to lead off with is from at eminfocus on Twitter. That's Patrick Bafuma. Patrick wrote, at David G. Fool, which is who I am on Twitter, at David G. Fool, as my wife chants, quotes, come on, spiffy pop, watching the stock restoration hardware, or now these days it's just RH, and that is the ticker symbol as well, watching RH this afternoon, her first ever investment. Thank you for the RBI podcasts, which we're finally able to convince her of the joy and power of the stock market, and we have started saving much much more because of it. And if there's my favorite tweet that I got all month, Patrick, I think it might be yours. And why? Because, well, first of all, I'm delighted to know that we have electrified investing for you and your wife and your family and those connected with you. I'm hoping that through our work at The Motley Fool, and certainly this podcast, that we're doing the best job we can, not just to help the world invest better, which is how we put The Motley Fool's purpose to our employees, to help the world invest better, but really to get the whole world Investing, and that is a very exciting expression from you. I also love, of course, that she knows what a spiffy pop is. I love that RH has been such a monster winner. I'll be mentioning it a little bit later this podcast. But finally, the dynamic that you mentioned at the very end of that tweet is one that I think is powerful, and I want to double underline it. And that is that once we get a taste of the benefits of investing, once we taste that fruit, my hope is, and I think it's true for many of us, and I can see it's true for you all. My hope is that it makes you want to save more. So I think an investing world is a world inspired by the benefits of investing. And what happens in that world that I hope that we're all living into? It's a saving world because you realize, I want to save more because we'll do much better when dollars multiply themselves through the stock market than if we just spend it on an extra pack of bubble gum or maybe an extra pack of baseball cards along with that chewing gum. Do people buy baseball cards? No doubt that they do. Things have probably gone digital. I'm a little bit behind in that aspect of our pop culture these days. Anyway, what a great tweet. Loved it, Patrick. Thank you very much. 
Another hot take. This one comes from Mabel Nunez at Teach Me to Invest. That's a good Twitter handle at Teach Me to Invest. Mabel writes this weekend's episode of our at RBI podcast featuring it was that extra featuring Mister Rogers is a strong buy. Watched his shows for the first time in the '90s when I moved to the states and didn't know any English. I too was one of his quotes indirect students. With a little smiley there. Take some time to listen today if you haven't yet. Thank you for that, Mabel. Yep. In fact, having seen the movie now, Won't You Be My Neighbor, it's clear that a lot of people did learn English in part just for Mr. Rogers' kids for whom English wasn't their first language. And it's great to hear from one of them. And Mabel, keep up your good work. Also, Emily Binder wrote in at Emily Binder. Great nuggets in this episode. Quoting Fred Rogers, quote, people love to know that they have something in them that is of value. End quote. Emily says, simple but powerful statement, Carnegie-esque, actually, useful in parenting, friendship, negotiation, every human interaction. Thank you, at Emily Binder. And by the way, if you missed that Mr. Rogers episode, it is the June 9th Rule Breaker Extra. It's a 28-minute original interview that my brother Tom and I conducted with Mr. Rogers just a few months before he retired. And one more hot take for you before we move to the hottest of takes, which is just on deck. And my producer, Rick Engdahl, will be joining me very shortly. But just one more. And this is from Scotty Greider, who's at Willy1Mo on Twitter. And he had an I Beat Matt hashtag. He obviously enjoyed the Market Cap Game Show of this past month. And he enjoyed it so much. I loved this. He includes an image in his tweet of his scorecards scoring each of the companies, the market caps, how Matt voted and how he voted. And I love that. I love to think that the Market Cap Game Show is starting to get its own scoring sheet, much like going to a ball game this summer, buying a program, and scoring along with the game. So, thank you, Willie1Mo. All right. Now, we've been ducking this issue for quite a while, but Rule breakers ourselves, we ultimately can't break the rules for long enough. We have to follow some of the rules we've set forward. So, this final hot take is a look at your opinion of the glass breaking sound that has opened up pretty much every Rule Breaker podcast since the dawn of Rule Breaker investing. And Rick Engdahl, my producer, Rick, you and I decided that we wanted to put this one to a vote, a vote of the people. We wanted to listen to the Vox Populi, because some people find that highly, is it fair to say, disruptive, potentially distracting, even upsetting sound at the start of this podcast a little bit too much for them. Others, no doubt, have grown inured, maybe loved it from the start. And so, Rick, I want to welcome you in. I'm happy to be here. Rick, you put a poll out on Twitter. What are the results right now in terms of how people feel about the glass-breaking sound at the start of this podcast? Well, I think that uh, the results so far are very close. It's 52 to 48 in favor of keeping the glass-breaking sound. That That is remarkable, just how split the vote is. Yes, um, and I, I actually misspoke. It's not keeping the glass-breaking sound, it's keeping the rule-breaking sound. Ah, uh, yes. Because the way that you put it, Rick, and I know you're in the pro let's keep the glass-breaking sound camp. You said it's not glass-breaking in a previous podcast. You said it's the sound of rules being broken. I, that's, that's definitely what it's there to do. It's, it's an uh, audio um, metaphor of <laughs> <laughs> everything that we stand everything for, that we stand for yes. whether people like it, apparently, or not. <laughs> Rick, you pulled a couple of tweets that you've enjoyed, uh, people tweeting out there about this. Do you want to share maybe a couple? Sure. And there were a lot of tweets on the subject, uh, in addition to just people voting on the poll. Uh, let's see. Here's one from Mike Steele, at other Mike Steele. It says, 
No more breaking glass. I listen while driving and I hate the distracting sound effect. Well, I don't want to distract somebody while they're driving. So that one kind of is important, I guess. Here's one. Emphatic vote against breaking glass sound. I often listen to RBI podcasts on a run, uh, including today. Too loud and jarring on the earbud. Usually takes a moment in the driveway to skip past the crash. Great show otherwise. This one is from... Uh, at Foolheart, PF Foolheart. Um, rule breaking doesn't really happen with a crash anyway, does it? It kind of sneaks in through the back door. Well, sometimes I suppose that's true. So you presented a couple of viewpoints there, that don't like the glass very much. Were there some sentiments in favor, some passionate statements in favor? Sure. One who just agrees with me. As Rick said, it's not breaking glass sound, but the breaking of rules sound. <laughs> but with that in mind, I think there might be other sounds such as a ref's whistle or the buzzer from Taboo that could better convey the idea of breaking hmm. rules. Well, hmm. That's possible. It's possible. At D. Score says, in some cultures, the breaking of glass is considered good luck. So that's another good reason to keep it. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. Sl- slamming your glass down at a Jewish wedding. But this one might be best here. Um, from J. Flag 1991, things are going a little too good for rule breakers right now to make such a change. Keep the glass smash. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to bring this one to a conclusion and some thoughts going forward, Rick, you and I have had some some heated discussions and and no doubt over alcohol, many a late night. We've, we we find ourselves haunted by this, preoccupied by this, but I think you and I have decided that we're going to keep the glass, but but I think maybe we'll bring the volume down a little bit for people. All right, so you're going to remaster our opener. But I also will be keeping my ears open for other sound effects. I have to say that when I first put that together, um, I did try a lot of different breaking sounds. There was breaking of wood. There was breaking of light bulbs and stuff. That was the only thing that really sounded like (laughs) a shattering sound. The other things, you know, the breaking of wood just kind of sounds like, you know, it didn't, without the visual to go with it, it didn't sound like breaking. Uh, I I understand. Glass is very distinctive. and, And at least half of us agree that it's great. And maybe the other half will appreciate a little reduction in a remastered opener for this podcast in future. Rick, when can you commit to our listeners to have that remaster in place? Well, if it didn't sound any different at the beginning of this episode, then by the next time, the next episode comes around, it will be at least lower volume. All right. And, you know, maybe I'll start mixing it up. I'll throw different sounds in for different shows in the future. (laughs) I'm not promising, but uh, maybe I'll just, you know. Excellent. All right. That is the hot takes section for this Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. Thank you, Rick Engdahl. Thank you all for your tweets. We always enjoy them. All right. Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag item number one. This one comes from Lewis Miller. David, I'm a longtime fool from back in the 90s. All right. And regular RBI podcast listener. Thank you, Lewis. In the last few years or so, as well as Tom and some of the other fool services, you have recommended several software as a service, or SaaS. I think a lot of people may know that acronym, even buzzword, if you will, these days. Companies. In my memory, Salesforce, CRM is the ticker symbol, and that's a rule breaker recommendation for the last 10 years or so, was the first such business model when it went public in the early 2000s. But recently, there's been an explosion of SaaS companies. Lewis goes on, there's been platform as a service, data as a service, transportation as a service, AI as a service. I heard somebody the other day, by the way, talking about games as a service. If you think about something like World of Warcraft or what Grand Theft Auto has done in recent years, which is just keep sending you more content from your initial buy, you're still playing the game four years later with constantly new stuff. Games as a service. So, X as a service, a business model, says Lewis Miller, that is maybe here to stay. What they all seem to have in common, two things, the cloud 
and a subscription revenue source. I wonder if you could devote some time on a future RBI podcast to discussing, from an investing perspective, both the pros and the cons of the SaaS model and how you differentiate among them in selecting which ones to recommend. Do you see SaaS as a market sector with many subsector winners or a few giant winners taking all? Perhaps you could do a five company sampler, etc. Thanks, David, for all you and Tom and the Motley Fool team do to educate, amuse, and enrich Lewis Miller. Well, I thought about this for about a minute. And then I thought, you know, I think there's a better podcast at The Motley Fool to really nail that. And so, my friend Dylan Lewis, Dylan, welcome. Nice to be here. It's a delight to have you. And Dylan, I know your voice because you are on Fridays doing Motley Fool Industry Focus and you're doing the tech segment every Friday. And can I say how flattering it is for you to think that I am more suited to answer this question? You absolutely are, at least in this sense, I'll say, Dylan. I mean, I do have some stock picks. I'm sure you do too, some of these in your portfolio. We've done well with a lot of them. But the reason that I thought of you right away is because I think what Lewis is asking for is kind of a deeper dive. And that's what I love about the Industry Focus podcast. I listen to you and your four compatriots, a different industry from Monday through Friday. I've really enjoyed that. I'll drive home in my car and just listen to you guys. And I was just thinking, because you do deep dives with your podcast. So, Dylan, you and I are talking about it. You've looked at some SaaS companies recently. Yeah, uh, that's what I love about the Industry Focus format, is that we have the flexibility to be a little bit more wonky with some of our discussions. So, so this is the perfect kind of question for us. Uh, folks that don't like SaaS might want to skip that one, but it's going to get answered. Um, we have touched on some SaaS companies somewhat recently. Uh, if you go back to the April 23rd episode, we talked a little bit about Paylocity and Appfolio, two SaaS businesses that are followed by a decent number of fools. We have not done the dedicated, this is what SaaS is, this is why it's important, here's what this space looks like. So I think this is a great question. And like I said, July 6th, we'll hit it. Awesome. So on July 6th, the industry focused tech, that's Friday, July 6th. That's mm-hmm. a couple of days after Independence Day next we week. We still do it, even with the holiday. That is awesome. And so Lewis Miller, our pal, D- Dylan Lewis, is going to take his show and, and look at SAS and answer some of the questions for you. And no doubt, Dylan, as you mentioned, you've already started that conversation with industry focused tech because these are big, relevant companies. But I, the reason I particularly appreciate that you're taking on this mantle, and I'll be looking forward to listening on. July 6th, is that I actually don't form up things as like SaaS companies. So, as an investor, I'm not sitting there going, I like SaaS, what are all the SaaS companies? Let me screen for them or filter down from them. For better or for worse, I, 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 I'm a bottoms-up investor, so I just flip over stones. I come across colorful, interesting shaped stones, and I flip them over and look at them, and oh, that one happens to be a SaaS. So, I actually don't have an industry focus, per se, and that's why I so appreciate the work that you do. Well, that's one of the fun things about this and these conversations that we have with listeners and people that follow The Fool is everyone seems to arrive at stock ideas differently. Right. Some people identify a hot trend and they want to see what the companies are in that space. Someone starts using a product and then they realize the whole space is there. And we get to benefit from getting tipped off from all these things. Awesome. Dylan, before I let you go, anything else you want to mention? Oh, yeah. So he mentioned that he is a longtime Fool follower. Uh, we are coming up on our 25th anniversary, as I'm sure you are keenly aware. I am aware. The Molly <laughs> Fools started business 25 years ago this summer. And we're going to be celebrating that beginning uh, Friday of this week. And we're going to be posting a lot of a lot of things that would indulge people that like the Fools past. And so, if you are interested in seeing some old pictures, some old magazine covers, <laughs> things like that from the 90s, 2000s. Both gardeners with some more hair, for example. Still not that much, but more. <laughs> I'll let you make that joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you go to our Facebook account, if you go to our Twitter account, you can find all of that there, and we'll be doing that all week. 
Awesome. Dylan, thanks a lot. Keep up the great work. Awesome. Thanks, David. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number two. This one came in from Arlo Randall by email. Yep, our email address is rbi at fool.com. And Arlo, I'm truncating this a little bit, but you were talking about the benefit of having a scorecard, and we have a lot of scorecards at fool.com. And you were talking about how interesting and fun it would be to look at some of those scorecards and, uh, and, and opine about them and see some of the more popular scorecards on the site. And I can totally understand how that would be fun, because in a way, when we look at scorecards, we're giving you or me a peek into how other people are investing. Now, of course, anybody who has a scorecard stored on our site, we don't take any peeks into that, and we wouldn't give anybody else peeks into that. But one scorecard you called out, which I thought was a lot of fun, was David's Biggest Losers. So, you're sharing a scorecard that you made on our site. And what you did, Arlo, is that you listened to our podcast on January 5th of 2017. So, about a year and a half ago, And at the start of every year, I lead off each year with a look at my biggest losers from the year before. And so, Arlo, in his wisdom, or in this case, I'll go with capital F, in his foolishness, he decided, let me actually track those five biggest losers from 2016. So, you wrote, Arlo, the rationale would be, quote, I listened to the Biggest Loser podcast and then bought all five of the stocks after. I really like your philosophy of not adding to losers, but since I did not own any of them, I decided to buy them because of your comment that they were all still active recommendations and you thought they could turn around. And those five were Restoration Hardware, RH, Juno Therapeutics, J-U-N-O, FireEye, F-E-Y-E, GoPro, whose ticker symbol is G-P-R-O, and finally Celdex Pharmaceuticals, ticker symbol CLDX. And here's how those five have done in the scorecard that you created, Arlo, from worst to best. Well, let's go in reverse order. Celdex minus 85%. Yup, it got even worse for that tiny biotech company. GoPro, down 28% from that date. FireEye, up 51% from that date. It's about to get even better. Juno Therapeutics, up 331% and bought out which was not a bad 18-month return. And finally, RH, Restoration Hardware, RH, up 429%. Arlo goes on, this may be a bad example to highlight, since buying losers is generally not good practice to encourage and not something we do on this podcast. But Arlo goes on to conclude, this was a fun scorecard to share. Well, I'm glad that you took the time to share that. Yes, you can create a scorecard on our site, many other sites. You could even just do it in Evernote or on an Excel spreadsheet. I think everybody who's a Motley Fool rule breaker knows that I love scoring. I think we should all be scoring. I want people to score me. I'm going to score you. And I love what you did, Arlo. Thanks a lot for sharing that. And what a bounce back it was for those companies. Makes me want to look back at our list from this January. This is not a five stock sampler. These are not stocks that I'm actively saying, I think these are awesome. I'm actually going over my worst picks from the year before. They do all still remain active recommendations, though. So perhaps there is something to these turnarounds. I guess it only takes one 300% spike or so to wipe out a whole bunch of losers. Anyway, thank you, Arlo. Rule Breaker Mailbag Item number three. This is from Phil Cooney. Phil said, I wrote you a note back in 2016 on LinkedIn while I was on a deployment with the Marine Corps that I thought you'd enjoy. I decided to send it again because I listen to you weekly on your Rule Breakers podcast and know you enjoy getting notes from listeners and members. Here was that note that Phil wrote back in 2016. David, I wanted to send a sincere thanks to all at The Motley Fool who make investing fun, accessible, and rewarding 
on behalf of a handful of Marines currently deployed to the Middle East. Listening to your podcasts and reading articles from Fool.com have been a great way to take a mental break while working long hours in a high-stress environment. I've been sharing foolish advice I've picked up with the Marines while we have downtime. Most of them have limited investment experience and are just starting to think about where to put their hard-earned savings, and the resources that The Motley Fool provides have been a catalyst for learning about investing in personal finance. Some of them have opened brokerage accounts and have purchased their very first shares of individual stocks. It's been fun watching them get excited about investing and talk about owning a part of a business. It's even more encouraging that they have taken the first steps to building wealth over time by buying and holding good companies. This next list of three companies that Phil called out two years ago among his fellow Marines, makes me really happy, because the next sentence said, Tesla, Activision, and Netflix have been some of the most popular picks. This is my own insert, of course, but check out the returns of those companies as a small portfolio over the last two years. Phil went on, I wanted to share this with you, and thank you for being an inspiration for a few Marines in the desert. We have four and a half months left before we head back to the States, and I'll do my best to keep them on track. Fulon, your friend, stock advisor member, CAPS intern, and fellow Alexandrian, Phil Cooney. Well, Phil, it's great to hear from you again. And In fact, I dropped Phil a note back, and I said, hey, I think we'd all like to hear an update. How are things going since then? So, Phil took the time to reply just a couple weeks ago with this. David, since my last note to you, the Marines and I safely returned from deployment back to Camp Pendleton, California. Conversations about investing might seem out of place on a Marine Corps deployment to the Middle East, but on a nine-month deployment, there's not a lot you don't talk about. Additionally, many service members take advantage of the time apart from their daily lives back home to set personal goals for self-improvement, whether they be financial, fitness, or educational. I'd also argue some of the qualities Marines are known for make them more predisposed to a foolish investing philosophy. They have discipline and courage to withstand short-term market fluctuations. They have a knack for self-reflection and self-improvement and are eager to learn from their mistakes. And finally, they like keeping score and don't like being shortchanged if they could do better. Phil concludes, I left active duty last summer and am finishing my first year of an MBA program. I've been very fortunate to have both the opportunity to pursue lifelong financial education and the encouragement of people like my dad and the Motley Fool community to keep at it. Thanks again for all you do to make investing accessible and fun for ordinary people looking for extraordinary results, sometimes in extraordinary places. Semper Fool, Phil. I think I'll leave that beautiful exchange right there. All right, next I'm going to go to a remarkable note with 20 lessons from somebody who just celebrated his 20th year among our Fool community. I love this note. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. But first, it's time to get your retirement on track and fix your 401k with Bloom. That's Bloom, B-L-O-O-O-M, with three O's. Does that sound tough? Well, it's not. In fact, it only takes five minutes. Go online to bloom401k.com fool and simply connect your existing 401k in a few easy steps. And then sit back and relax while Bloom performs an unbiased analysis of the funds in your account and chooses the best mix to meet your goals while minimizing hidden investment fees. Getting your investments right doesn't have to be hard, painful, or time-consuming. 
Bloom researches, invests, manages, monitors, and grows your 401k while you relax. Bloom's pricing is $10 a month. That's regardless of account size. With Bloom's free analysis, you can see the impact they can make on your 401k before you even pay. Bloom is so simple. In fact, the hardest part about this is maybe just remembering that there are three O's in Bloom. So go to bloom401k.com/fool and enter promo code fool for your first month free and see the difference Bloom could make in your retirement. As I mentioned, my friend Eric recently celebrated his 20th Fooliversary, and he took the time to reflect back on those years of his life and the lessons that he learned about investing and himself over the course of that time. I think this is such a deeply beautiful note and also one that packs so much insight that I insist, and Eric has given me permission to share it here with you. So, let's get started. Settle in, fools. Here we go. It starts this way. Hello, fools. Today is my 20th Fooliversary for which I wanted to share my foolish journey and 20 lessons learned from 20 years of fool. The beginning. 20 years ago, a simple conversation proved to be a pivotal moment in my and my parents' lives, but we would not fully recognize its import for another 15 years. My colleague Sandra and I were chatting on that day of June 22, 1998, about some of the brand-new revolutionary web-based companies such as eBay and Amazon. Our conversation briefly skirted towards investing because I'd mentioned that my grandmother, who was then 93, had again gifted $10,000 of her mobile stock to each of her heirs. She had purchased these shares back in the 1940s and 50s when she and my grandfather lived and worked in Colombia and Venezuela during the early days of the Gulf of Mexico and Caribbean Sea oil boom. Sandra excitedly asked if I knew about The Motley Fool. Having never heard of it, she then spoke with enthusiasm that it teaches individual investors how to invest in the stock market. Intrigued, I looked into it. When I returned home, I signed up. Soon afterwards, I met David and Tom at the Bethesda, Maryland Barnes & Noble bookstore, which I believe has recently closed. Did you hear the teardrop fall? Eric wrote. After their fun and informative spiel, I waited in line to buy their book and had them sign it. I so enjoyed those guys and their goofy gesture caps. I've enjoyed each time I've gotten to meet them since. But now the real beginning. Parents, please take note. It actually began long before, as I've alluded to, because my grandparents on both sides of my family began investing in the 1940s, and I watched my dad analyze companies and charts in our dining room when I was growing up. My parents and my mom's parents, the ones in the oil business, would talk around the family table about the businesses in which they owned stock. So, I was comfortable with business and the stock market. So, here come the early lessons. There are three of them. And there's an obvious point here with two more subtle ones. Number one, I grew up around individuals owning stock and holding on to them for their lifetime. Number two, my family spoke more about the businesses they owned than of the movement of the stock prices, though the latter was always fun to follow. And number three, never once did they speak about selling their long-term core holdings. The concept was simply absent. Next section, entitled, My first tuition payment, Black Monday, 19 October 1987. Oddly enough, even though I grew up with the stock market, I didn't have a clue how to invest with my corporate benefits after landing my first full-time job. Those were a mystery to me and seemed irrelevant at age 25. At the advice of an HR rep, I maximized my 401k savings and put it into a safe money market fund. He encouraged us new hires to revisit, after a few months, how we allocated the funds. 
Unfortunately, I never thought about it again until six years later, when an also young colleague implored me to move the funds into Peter Lynch's Magellan Fund, showing me the data backing his own choice. I happily did so, unaware of the collision of that strategy with my goal of using the 401k to buy my first townhouse, which back then you could do penalty-free. My time horizon was way too short to be in the stock market, but neither of us recognized that at the time. Six months later, Black Monday hit as we watched our 401ks fall 25% at the opening bell and slide another 25% over the next few months. Adding insult to injury, the IRS changed the rules, reinstating the customary 10% penalty for a first house tuition or major medical. I was so angry, I could hardly sit still. There goes my house up in flames. Yet instead of bailing out of the stock market at those horrible lows, I chose instead to win by hanging in there. That's what my family always had done through many recessions, so I was confident it would recover in time as it always had. Lo and behold, my 401k fully recovered 12 months later, helped along by my continued contributions throughout the storm. Best of all, these contributions made a killing that year. Lessons from Black Monday. Here are three more lessons that emerged from the ashes of Black Monday. And again, we're working toward 20 lessons, so here we go. Number four, I held all of my 401k mutual fund during that ferocious decline, which made 2008-9 feel like a leisurely stroll downhill. Number five, I kept adding to my 401k Magellan fund position as the market collapsed and recovered, making my best returns by far with those contributions. And number six, I learned about time horizons. Keep any funds you will need within the next three to five years out of the stock market and in cash or its equivalent. The next chapter, entitled My Second Tuition Payment, Dot Boom to Dot Bust, 2001. The stock market was booming with dot-com enthusiasm by the time I discovered The Motley Fool. I soon became fully invested and, like everyone else, began making impressive gains. So impressive that I quit my day job in August 2000, to put full-time into analyzing companies and posting what I learned on the Fool's discussion boards. Of particular interest to me was answering the question of why failed small caps had failed. The answer was and remains debt. They're not big enough to withstand a shock to their finances when they carry debt. The Motley Fool liked my analysis of foolish eight small caps enough to invite me to become a plank holder of their new soapbox service where fools like me could publish our reports for sale. Like so many, I was convinced that the internet revolution would sweepingly change business and society. That belief sustained our acceptance of the absurdly high stock market valuations. I was so confident, in fact, that I went on margin, despite the warnings of the fool itself. It was a heady time. And we all know it ended very poorly for nearly everyone, including Fool HQ. Many were laid off, Soapbox was closed up, and my finances were obliterated. While we were correct in our belief of the internet revolution, we were disastrously wrong in both the timeline and in who would capture the value created. We believed the transformation would be completed within three years, when the reality was more like 10 years. And it's still underway. More crushingly, however, was our belief that shareholders would capture most of the value. The reality is that customers captured most of it, and they continue to do so to this day. That's not so bad, really, as every one of us is an internet customer. Dot bomb lessons. Eric wrote, these may have been my hardest earned lessons of all 
Here we go, numbers 7 through 12. Number 7, keep your day job, as you may simply be lucky, not smart, and luck runs out. Number 8, keep all your contacts from your day job if you do quit, as you may need them again one day. Fortunately, I was good about this one. Number 9, understand the hype cycle. Euphoria is the worst time to buy, while despair is the best time to buy. Number 10, learn how to value hyper-growth companies. Forget earnings and EBITDA, focus on sales, operating cash flow, and the ever-intangible visionary leadership. Number 11, ask who will capture the value created by a novel technology. If it's not the companies you're invested in, perhaps it's the customer, then you will lose money. And number 12, don't use margin. That was the leverage that ultimately crushed me. So, let me repeat that. Don't use margin. All right, the next chapter, Applying the Education, Boldly Stepping Forth in 2008. Eric goes on, For two years, I was out of the workforce, during which I worked on a book with a best friend, never published but invaluable to us, and helped out a failing startup. It failed, but gave me invaluable insights and lessons in startups. When the last of the money ran out, I went back to work on my mom's birthday in October 2003, best birthday present ever, yes, to rebuild my finances and help another best friend, who was a single mom with a daughter heading off to college and a son in high school. Except for my new 401k, I stayed out of the stock market as I again began saving for the down payment on a house. Five years later, in 2008, the bottom once again fell out of the stock market, but this time, I was prepared. By November 2008, the economy and market had gotten so bleak that I took it as a sign from above to forget about my house and go all in to the stock market using rule breakers, stock advisor, and hidden gems as my initial guides. For the next four and a half years, I lived frugally and shoved every dime I could into the stock market. I joined Duke Street, now Motley Fool 1, and explored every service they had until, after several years, I understood the strategy that suited my own temperament and life situation. I now buy companies with superior business economics, visionary leadership, strong and preferably multiple growth opportunities, and disciplined risk management, then hold them for years, if not forever, as my grandparents did. By following The Motley Fool's extraordinary strategy and education, my first Amazon position, bought 18 November 2008, is a 44-bagger. And my first Netflix position, bought 18 May 2009, is a 75-bagger. And here come lessons 13 to 17. This is what I wish I'd been doing from the outset. Lessons for the long journey, number 13. Live frugally. Do you really need all the stuff? A simpler life helps you discover and focus on what's truly important to you. Number 14, invest the savings. It's so much fun reading about what to buy next and then buying it. Knowing I was successfully attaining my financial goals gave me a sense of growing independence and freedom. Number 15, the Motley Fool's philosophy of buying quality companies with bright futures and holding them for the long term through even difficult volatility has proven itself over the past 15 years in so many foolish portfolios. Number 16, discover your own strategy and adapt it to meet your current circumstance as you migrate through life's phases. And number 17, market declines are buying opportunities. Welcome them. And it is so much fun watching your returns skyrocket over the years as the market recovers and recommences its ascent. All right, and now to early retirement and more Motley Fool time. 
Eric went on, uh, by the time I was laid off in May 2013 at age 57, I was both eligible for early retirement and financially in a position to do so. As long as I continued living somewhat frugally, I wasn't penny-pinching, but I was doing things like driving a now 20-year-old car so I could do more interesting things, such as travel to Alaska, snowshoe Mount Hood in Oregon, visit family and friends around the country, and finally, buying that house near Portland, Oregon. After retiring, I again became more actively involved in the Fool community. The Motley Fool later picked a bunch of us for their new farm team. I began as a ticker guide for GoPro. Unfortunately, not one of my better stock picks has been often talked about in this podcast. Then slowly added coverage for several other companies. Many Motley Fool One members have thoroughly enjoyed attending the Fool member conferences at HQ and around the country. The presentations have been invaluable. Meeting so many Fools, employees, and members alike is a true highlight as everyone becomes a real tangible person. Investment lesson number 18, getting involved with the Motley Fool community really ups your own investment game, and it makes your Motley Fool experience so much more fun and engaging. So, start with a simple introduction or question on the discussion boards. I lurked for four months before asking a very basic question. It's deadly snowballed from there. The hardest part is making that first post, but it gets so much easier after that, and the rewards, both financial and social, are immense. My parents win, too. One of the most satisfying aspects of my journey with The Motley Fool is that I introduced Daddy to The Motley Fool. He, too, liked what he saw, began diversifying his and Mama's investments using Income Investor, greatly boosting their dividend yield while reducing their nearly exclusive exposure to the oil and gas industry. That was a most fortuitous shift, as the oil and gas industry nosedived a few years later in 2015. The transformation of their portfolio has wonderfully transformed their retirement years. So, lesson number 19, sharing is at the heart of fooldom. Share your knowledge of investing with family and friends and encourage them to check out fool.com. It just might change their lives as David and Tom changed our lives by reaching out to all of us fools. There is no need to proselytize. Simply let others know about your involvement with The Motley Fool when appropriate. If you see interest, gently encourage it. People often ask me what I've been doing since retirement. Well, let me tell you about my experiences with The Motley Fool. Dot, dot, dot. And finally, lesson number 20, the 20th lesson for 20 years, be grateful for your health and the opportunities it gives you, for your prosperity and the opportunities it gives you, and most of all, for those who love you and the meaning they give to your life. Then give it all forward, wrapped in kindness. My very best to all, Foolish Eric. Well, that was probably the longest read that I may ever perform on this podcast. In many ways, it expresses a journey that many of us have been on, because Eric, like a lot of us, has lived through those last 20 years and just think about the drama that any of us could have had going through 2000, 2001, then 2008, 9, and then the tremendous run that the stock market has made in periods that weren't within those bear market years. And the good news is most of them have been bull market years, but I love the candid nature of Eric's expression, the mistakes that he's made. Each of those 20 lessons could be shared with a friend or family member. I took a lot away from that as well, Eric. And as Dylan mentioned earlier this podcast, it is The Motley Fool's 25th anniversary this month. So, I'm going to put that forward as a contribution toward honoring the 25 years of The Motley Fool, in this case, through the eyes of one investor. But I think for a lot of us, as longtime fools, people who may have discovered the website 25 years ago, 2010, five years ago, we can relate to what Eric's saying, and he helps us think aspirationally about what we'd like to become. So, I want to thank Eric for that wonderful note and for the kindness and patience for all of you listening. 
All right, Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag, item number five. And this one is for the entrepreneurs out there. You know, one of the things that we're always going to do on this podcast, beyond just talking about investing, or especially for our mailbag inspirational stories, is speak to the entrepreneurs, speak to professionals, people working for profit, not for profit, and think, how can we do what we do better? I want to invite my friend Mark Brooks. Mark, talk about working in the Motley Fool a long time. Mark, how long have you been at the Fool? Uh, 13 years last week. That's pretty awesome, and I really yeah. thank you for 13 wonderful years together. Mark, what do you do at The Fool these days? Uh, gosh, it's hard to describe. Management stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I help make sure uh, our priorities are set correctly, that we're resourcing projects that are important and not ones that aren't, and uh, that we're getting the best investing advice in front of our members. And to that end, you've been involved a fair amount over your 13 years in hiring and bringing people here into the Fool. And a few weeks ago on the podcast, I used the old saw, A's hire A's, while B's hire C's, and C's hire D's. Yep, what, what, do you think of that, what do you think of that line just on its own? Uh, agree, disagree? What are your thoughts? Uh, I, I think I agree. Um, I think it's I think it's hard to hire up <laughs> for people. Um, so yeah, I think I think there's some truth to the old saw. There are exceptions both ways, obviously, but yeah, I agree. So I do too, and I, it's not like it's a unique Motley Fool point. This is an old saw, as we've established, but it it does have you, if you believe it and agree with it, thinking about who are your A players at your company of whatever size, and trying to make sure they're involved in the hiring. And I think that you've been one of those A players who's helped us, and you've helped those around you to find the good people. And we have really good people here at the company. Now, Sam wrote in in response, and I thought uh, a couple thoughtful questions. I'd just love to hear your takes on a couple of things Sam said. So, Mark, he said, great podcast this week. Your point about A's hiring A's, B's hiring C's, C's hiring D's, an interesting one that spawned a couple of thoughts. Number one, Sam said, I believe there's a third reason why this happens that might even be the most important. It's that A's are able to convince other A's to work for them, and that the prospective employee wants to go to work for an A. I think in hiring, convincing someone great to work for you and not somebody else can be harder than simply finding a great person. Yeah, I think agree, right? So, birds of a feather flock together. Uh, and so, I think I think A's tend to run in packs. And uh, I, yeah, I totally agree with Sam's point. I think um, you know, the folks who are referrals at The Fool tend to be really great hires, generally speaking, um, especially when they come from our, uh, from our A players, from our high performers. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Number two, Sam said, this is a significant simplification of the talents and usefulness of employees. Of course, you realize this, he says, and you and I agree, this is fairly reductionistic to sure. reduce people to letters and yeah. then say it's, right. it all right, works right, right. this way. Yep. So, here's a whimsical question back. I didn't have an answer to this. Mark, you're smarter than I am, so maybe you're ready for this. <laughs> I know you're ad-libbing here. Okay. He said, also... How do the B employees ever get hired? <laughs> Man, that's a really good question. Uh, and I, I, so I, I mentioned before that I think there are there are exceptions, right? And uh, you know some of the some of the most um, effective hiring processes we've had at the Fool are when we can work alongside someone before we bring them on. And so in a in uh, a very condensed interview format it can be very difficult even for A's to determine who is an A versus who is a B. A lot of times it becomes very evident um, you know, through the interview process, those sorts of things. But um, one thing that we've started doing at The Fool is trying to uh, get projects out there to prospective employees in the area in which they'd be working and actually paying them to do it. So, like on the tech side, we'll have an actual business problem that we need to solve, hmm. and we'll send it out to prospective employees and say, we're going to give you 
just we're going to give you five hundred dollars to solve this problem. Please submit your you know your response. So it's not these theoretical coding questions or anything like that. We're actually giving them a problem that we need to solve as a business, paying them to do it. And I got to tell you. $500 at the beginning of the interview process lost is a lot less expensive than hiring someone, you know, who continues to underperform and we have to take action on later. So we found that to be effective. So any chance you have to work alongside someone and see them in that element working in that subject matter leads to a much better hiring decision, I think. That's tremendous. And yeah, and and I guess I would supplement by also saying to Sam, um, neither Mark nor I nor anybody here at the Fool walks around putting letters on everybody and saying A's hire A's and B's hire C's C's hire It is definitely an oversimplification. Right. So the way that B's get hired in the first place is that sometimes C's end up being B's and sometimes A's turn out to be B's. There are B's everywhere if you even right. want to use these B's. There are B's there are B's everywhere. <laughs> okay. And Sam's last point, Mark, and then I'll let you go. I'd like to expand this concept to companies as a whole, he writes. A companies hire A employees, B companies hire C employees, and C companies hire D employees. I believe this gets at a very underrated advantage that great, quotes, overvalued companies, we would call those rule breakers in this podcast, perhaps, right. great companies have, which is that they have and are able to consistently hire great employees, sometimes even at below market prices, because those people want to work on interesting challenges with awesome people. I think profound investing insight could be gleaned from talking to some college students at high-quality colleges and asking them where their most talented friends are working or want to work. And Sam signs off with Fool On. Mark, closing thoughts? Fool On, Sam. Uh, I think that's true. I think there. I think we may look back on the last five to ten years and see what has happened in terms of talent coming out of uh, universities or directly out of high school with uh, Silicon Valley and the startup culture. So I think a lot of people will go off and try to solve interesting problems with companies that will rapidly become insolvent, right? And part of our part of our job in Rule Breakers and in our other services is to suss out which of those. <laughs> but I think I think it will be it will be interesting. And my hope for those uh, young kids is that even going to those uh, those companies that end up crashing, they learn valuable lessons about how to run a profitable business, um, et, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, it, I think it will be interesting to look back. Over the, I, th- I think Sam is largely right. I think right now you have a lot of companies who are will eventually be insolvent, who are hiring some really great talent. And so mm. what those folks learn from that and what they take to their next employer, I think will be an interesting thing to look back on. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. And similarly, Sam, I've said it, I said this to our summer interns this summer, but as you graduate, Graduate, if you feel prepared and equipped and you want to take the risk, find the bleeding edges of technology across all industries and just try to find yourself there. Back at the age of 52 now, back when I was coming out of college, the internet was just kind of starting. And people used to use the phrase internet time. And the idea was a single month at an internet company was worth a year if you went to work for I don't know, General Electric or Bank America. And so the idea of internet time that if you buy into that, it suggests that your time is more valuably spent when you're innovating, even, Mark, if those companies seem to be going yeah, out of absolutely. business, which sometimes absolutely. they always will, I guess. Yep. Yeah. yep, true. Mark Brooks, thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks, David. All right, and to close, Rule Breaker Investing mailbag item number six. I welcome back my good friend David Kretzman. Hey, David. How are you, David? I'm doing well. Excellent. Um, so we're going to eat a little crow here at the end of this podcast. <sighs> Got to do it. You know, yeah. sometimes we do that. I mean, 
I eat crow on a fairly regular basis when I pick stocks like GoPro, which I, uh, well, I've done in the past. I'm the one who pitched it to you, David. So no, I, I think we both eat crow that. On that. I don't uh, even remember. But, oh, but you're the, too kind. Well, I, as a bottom line um, for Stock Advisor and for Rule Breakers, since their inception, I'm always the guy who makes the final call. And when we screw up, I'm always going to take full responsibility because it really is my final call. So, David, well, we're not even here to talk about GoPro, but briefly, since we are, you may have pitched it, um, and and you were that was maybe in your first early months as a fool. Yeah. But but I, I I in fact I remember waiting and it ran up I think from like forty to eighty and I finally said let's buy it now. <laughs> so watching it drop to ten isn't fun from forty, but it's even less fun from eighty. So our timing on that one was not not ideal, but <laughs> thankfully we we have plenty of other picks to more than make up for that loser. Thank you. All right, well this one comes from Christian Belko, and I'm not going to read the whole email, but I'm going to get the gist of it, and then we're just going to talk about it briefly. Dear David, Christian starts. Thank you for taking the time to read my email today. I enjoy the podcast very much. Listen back and forth driving to work every Thursday to get your feedback from a variety of different topics. And while I learn a lot of things from the RBI podcast that I didn't know excite me, today I heard you speak about a topic that for the first time felt like a wrong response to a listener question. Christian goes on, it was in response to the Dave story you told during the May mailbag. That was one month ago this week, I guess. You and David Kretzman were answering a gentleman's question who was also named Dave. Oh, yes. And we're having fun with that. About how he was so excited to have saved $500 in a brokerage account and was looking for advice on stocks to buy. You and David spoke about types of stocks, et cetera, et cetera. But on the fractional shares piece, um, you all stated that options like ShareBuilder or Stockpile could be a good option for him to get started investing with fractional shares, even though the writer already stated he opened a Fidelity account. Christian goes on, I myself am a current Capital One share builder investor, but as of January this year, this part of Capital One was purchased by E-Trade and is in process of transitioning all holdings to E-Trade later this year. In fact, here's an article, Linky Linky, written by the Motley Fool uh, on this. They have no plans to continue with the fractional share program after the merger. And David K, although I'll throw in David G here as well, should have mentioned you can only buy fractional shares on a specific day of the week and time when Capital One can fill the order. Now, the second point was about moving out of the account that the listener Dave had already set up and was excited to get investing in. It sounded on the podcast that since he didn't set up the account under the right brokerage, the advice was to change brokerages and use their benefits instead. While this may seem easy to seasoned investors, Christian writes, a newer investor may find this off-putting and less enthusiastic about maybe becoming an investor. It would have been more helpful to talk about other opportunities with Fidelity or reach out to give advice on how he could use the Fidelity site for his goals more effectively, creating watch lists, etc. I felt that this advice, in conclusion, would have better served Dave's questions and hope that next time you're doing a mailbag, you'll consider all the best options for newer investors and do some more research rather than just go off the cuff with some suggestions going forward. Thank you for taking the time to read my email and fool on, says Christian. All right, David. What are we going to do about this? Well, I feel like part of the nature of Rule Breaker Investing, the podcast that I've been doing for almost three years now, we started in July of 2015, in fact, is there is a little bit off the cuff. You know, I, I have to admit, um, I'm not deeply knowledgeable across a lot of the topics that we'll cover, and 
It's my pleasure to bring people onto the show who have some perspective about those things who might know it better than I. David, you are younger than I am. You have, um, I remember you advising uh, undergrads when you and I traveled together and spoke at university uh, to start a Robin Hood account a few years ago. I think that, that was excellent advice. I remember that. So I was like, hey, let's have David come on and talk about this. And, and that was also my impression of how ShareBuilder works. But it sounds like we didn't quite get it. And I think it's because part of the nature of this podcast is we are kind of shooting from the hip and off the cuff a little bit. And we do rely on smart people like Christian to come in and let us know if we blew it. And I love to read notes like that because that's going to help us help make us better going forward. Absolutely. I think that's one of the, the greatest benefits of, of the full community is that we help each other get better. And in this case, uh, yeah, it certainly was my mistake missing that E-Trade was buying that piece of Capital One, the, the brokerages that they have with ShareBuilder. Um, and that's just a piece of the ongoing consolidation that we're seeing with a lot of these uh, brokerages out there. While we're on the subject of brokerages, two months in a row, love it. Uh, one thing that your brother <laughs> mentions a lot and more and more frequently is that every everyone should be asking their their brokerage for free commissions, just because brokerages are finding it more and more difficult to differentiate themselves from each other. All, all these brokerages, for the mm-hmm. most part, offer similar features. So, if you're with someone like a Fidelity or a TD Ameritrade, might as well call them up or shoot them a note and say, hey, I've been a loyal member, or maybe you're a brand new member. Uh, why, why not shoot me over 10 or 100 free trades? So, that's that's one way, if you're uh, starting out, that you can uh, keep, keep your costs down. Um, and going back to our question last month with Dave, who had $500 in the Fidelity account, I would say if you are getting started, uh, there, there's nothing wrong with investing just $150 or $200 in a couple stocks, just start starting off there. You don't necessarily need to have a high amount set per stock to invest in, so you don't necessarily need $500 or $1,000 per position. I actually prefer starting small and then following the story and adding over time. And mm-hmm. I think that fits, David, with your approach of adding to your winners over time. You don't necessarily need to start big and add from there. I think, especially if you're starting out, start small, continue to add what you can to your account, whether it's in Fidelity, Robinhood, Stockpile, whatever it might be, and go from there. So, certainly, the the objective that we had last month was not to discourage any new, new investor, but rather, uh, I think, just go over some of the different options out there, but we could have done a, different, a better job, and me especially, done a different, uh, or a better job presenting it. Well, I really appreciate Christian taking the time to write. I feel like we may have slightly misserved our pal Dave as fellow Daves. I think we have to have a Dave apology to Dave. Of course. So, we're sorry, Dave. Sorry, Dave. And we're excited that you're investing. We definitely are all about, and I think I've made it clear this week's podcast, we're all about getting people started investing. And uh, and just a final thought about just the off-the-cuff nature of podcasting. Um, certainly, for a lot of our work at The Motley Fool, uh, we take that deeply seriously. We have fact-checkers, multiple looks before we publish recommendations, our stock research. We take that all very seriously. But if you're a Motley Fool podcast listener, whether you enjoy market foolery, Motley Fool money, industry focus, which I highlighted this week, or Motley Fool answers, which is such a delight with Allison Southwick and Robert Brokamp, do know that probably the level of fact-checking across Motley Fool podcasts would be beneath the level that we expect of published research and other work on our site. So, I'm just delighted to have friends like David Kretzman, who are so knowledgeable and such great exemplars. David, how old are you these days? 25. I wish every 25-year-old had started investing when you did, or is listening to you now and getting started investing. That's a big part of this podcast as well. But it's my honor to have people like this, and often, as I did with Mark Brooks earlier, I'm kind of, you know, 
know, taking them by the buttonhole and saying, hey, would you join the podcast in about 15 minutes? I'd love to have... So, there's not a lot of preparation we have. We're always shooting a little bit from the hip with our Motley Fool podcast. But again, I really appreciate the note, Christian, and um, my delight. Thank you, David, for joining with me and our delight to try to serve and try to up our game when we need to. And we want to hear from you on that. So, thank you. All right. Well, that's it for this week's mailbag. Thank you so much for June and June 2018, which was a lot of fun. Whether it was our stock stories with the Dan Pink cameo, our market cap game show with Matt Argusinger, or six investing takeaways from the 2018 World Cup, which is what I did last week. Well, let's talk about next week. For a lot of us Americans, this podcast will publish on Independence Day, July 4th, 2018. We do have a fresh podcast for you next week. Rick and I will be taping that a couple of days early so we can spend some time with our families or maybe at the beach, at least in my case, the North Carolina beach. But I want you to know it's going to be a fun podcast because next week I get to pick five stocks. It's going to be five stocks celebrating the 2018 World Cup, companies that I like for the next four years because that's how long we wait for the next men's World Cup, and companies inspired by the World Cup itself. Also, I'll be reviewing a five-stock sampler from two years ago when Brexit occurred. So, the Brexit-inspired stock list. So, stocky, stocky, stocky next week podcast. In the meantime, thank you to my additional voices on this week's podcast, Rick Engdahl, my producer, Dylan Lewis, Mark Brooks, and David Kretzman. And most of all, thank you to our listeners for suffering fools gladly. See you next week. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.